I was here in the summertime, and it was gracious of you to invite me back for a fall mini-series. Uh, we're going to be looking in Je- uh, John chapter 8 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and find that, John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. And a few weeks ago, Camper called me and just to check in uh, as I was preparing to, to preach today, and then Ron called me uh, last week to check in, and I both said that I'm going to be doing communion today, and I said, that's wonderful. But I will uh, confess, I was a little nervous when I walked into the foyer and saw all that bread on the table. I got a little nervous. We're going to be looking at a two-parter, um, what it means to abide in Christ, to abide in Jesus. And this text today, we're going to see that Jesus said uh, what it means to remain or abide in His words, to let His words abide in us. But uh, before we get to chapter 15 next week, uh, chapter 8 really helps to clear away the underbrush and the obstacles of what it means to abide in Jesus. So let's give careful consideration and attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning with verse 31 of chapter 8 of the Gospel according to John. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have uh, heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from my father. This is not what Abraham did. In verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know Him. And if I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. This morning I have a fishing story for you. Did you hear the one about the state legislators who tried to make it against the law to lie about your catch? I'm being serious. I'm not making this up. In Texas, the state of Texas, where they do everything big, it could soon be illegal, even a felony, to fib about your catch in a fishing tournament. Um, you know, it could be a felony if you misrepresent the size of the weight in this uh, tournament. It was, this bill was introduced by a senator by the name of Bill Hager, and it was attending, attended to, to address some of the cheating that was going on in largemouth bass fishing tournaments. The bill was passed unanimously, and the senator went on to say that some people are literally, they, they take scissors and they trim the tail of the fish to make it uh, fit in certain categories of certain tournaments. So if the tournament prize is more than $10,000, you're not going to believe this, uh, it could mean a big giant fine or up to 10 years in prison. You'd say that uh, Texas takes its fishing very seriously, as some of you probably do. And, uh, but, you know, it's a situation where uh, the, being truthful literally means freedom. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, when they, they sinned and they rebelled against God, we have had an epic struggle against the concepts, or with the concepts, of honesty, truthfulness, and freedom. Genesis 2 tells us that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. Now, that's a significant statement. That's a huge statement. Don't miss the significance of that statement that they were naked and unashamed. Nowhere else do we find this expression in all of Scripture. But because we have never experienced a life with, without sin, because we're fallen creatures, uh, uh, we sin in our, our thought, word, and deed every day, uh, it's hard for us really to imagine what it would be like to live in a world of complete honesty and safety with no need to hide or cover up things. It's just hard for us to imagine that. Things changed dramatically when Adam and Eve disbelieved God, they rebelled against God, and they believed the, the lies of the serpent, the evil one. And the first thing they tried to do, as you well know if you know the Old Testament or you know uh, the book of Genesis, was they, they tried to hide from God. They tried to hide from God. Next thing they were really trying to do is hiding from each other. They covered themselves up. But what we don't always see and understand, what's not so obvious from Genesis, is the hiding that happened inside Adam and Eve. Something was going on inside them. They began to cover up and deny what they knew about themselves. They began to live in a life of self-deception. I mean, really, if you think about this, if you really wrap your, your mind around it, did Adam really think that he could hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Take some pretty strong self-deception in order to believe that. But on the other hand, can you really blame them? Uh, can any one of us bear to know how sinful we really are? So, how do we experience true freedom? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. And in light of our own self-deception, in light of our, you know, our, we have alienation from God, alienation from each other, and alienation from ourselves just in our natural state, we have this, this self-deception going on in our lives. Um, how do we really experience true freedom? Is there really any hope for us? 
In light of our own self-deception, how can we possibly break free from the things that entangle and enslave us? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at it in three parts, three questions. And the first question that we're going to answer this morning is, what is it exactly that entangles or enslaves us? Look with me in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So there it is right there. In a word, what is it that entraps us, enslaves us, captures us, and entangles us? In a word, three-letter word, sin. Now, when I say that, you almost see a collective yawn in a church setting, in a congregation. You see a collective yawn. Oh, Dan, uh, you know, sin, bad. Sin is a bad thing. Sin is a destructive force in people's lives. Sin is, you know, uh, roots itself in my own life. But if you say that word in the wider culture, you get a different response. And if you say the word sin in a church setting, you often see yawns. But if you say the word sin in the wider culture, you don't see yawns, you see scowls and puzzled looks. It's they, they, people in our wider culture think, you know, sin is archaic. It's, uh, you're out of touch with reality, Dan. The problem with humankind and mankind is a lack of education. People destroy themselves. They hurt other people. There's pain in people's lives. And what, what is needed there is education. We just need to educate people. The problem with the world is ignorance. Jesus says something kind of strange to the church of his day. When he says to the church of the day that our prob- the problem is that, uh, that sin enslaves us, entraps us, entangles us, and captures us. To the church of the day, they didn't react with yawns, they reacted with scowls and puzzled looks. In fact, they kind of say something odd that's kind of puzzling in itself. When Jesus said that sin, anybody that sins is a slave to sin, uh, they said something very strange. What did they say? They said, well, Jesus, we haven't been a slave to anyone. Well, that's kind of odd considering their history. Okay? Considering their history, most of their lives have been lived in enslavement, political oppression and rule by what are some of the nations? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and now they're under the thumb of Roman rule. They're living in Greek and Roman society. So from a political standpoint, it seems like a very odd statement for them to respond to Jesus like this. So maybe they're, maybe they're speaking metaphorically, maybe they're speaking in a spiritual sense. In other words, they're saying, you know, um, uh, God is our God, and um, you know, we're speaking in a spiritual sense because we try to serve the one true God, but we're surrounded in this pagan culture. It's very hard to do that. Uh, they're saying, we are God's people. He is our God. But is that really true? The very reason that God's people were experiencing exile in their past and under Roman rule and under the thumb of Rome now is because of their spiritual adultery. Uh, Having spiritual love affairs with the gods and the idols of surrounding nations. Here's a recipe for an affair. It's very simple. You take one spouse and you add to it another lover and you end up emptying that relationship of its significance, its meaning, and its commitment. And that's what Israel had done. They were so self-deceived. And before we wag our tail and kiss our tongue at, at Israel, we have to acknowledge and hit the kind of the pause button here that we're easily self-deceived. Why is that? 
I want to give you at least two reasons. One reason is what the writer of Hebrews says about sin. The writer of Hebrews warns the church uh, of that day, and, and to us as well, of the inherent deceitfulness of sin. Within sin, sin is inherently deceitful. There's a second thing I think that's going on here when we, um, we, we're getting so prone to self-deception. We are so easily engaged in perspective switching. Last year I read a very intriguing book by a Christian, um, well he's a professor of philosophy at Biola University, his name is Greg Tin Elshoff, and Elshoff um, wrote a very intriguing book, I, I couldn't resist the title, it's called I Told Me So. I, recommend, I highly recommend, it's a fascinating read about the problem of self-deception. In that book he says that you know we have this amazing capacity to disregard our own view of ourselves when other people's view of us is more attractive. Conversely, uh, we will also disregard other people's view of us when our view of ourselves is more attractive. We see this in the Old Testament in the life of King David, don't we? We know the story of King David. David lived, uh, managed to, to live with himself after murdering uh, the husband of the wife he had an affair with, or a woman he had an affair with. And we think to ourselves, how did he do that? How did he manage to live with himself for a better part of a year? Well, he organized his mind from the perspective of other people. Uriah was the man of, um, he was the husband of the, the wifey, of the, of the woman he had an affair with, and, and um, he was a loyal soldier. Uh, he loved David and served uh, the army faithfully. And so David began in this thing called perspective switching, where, you know, he thought to himself, you know, Uriah was a loyal soldier. Loyal soldiers give it all to their country, to their nation. Uriah died in a legitimate battle. Yep, there he did. It was a legitimate battle. Um, soldiers die all the time. After a suitable time of grief, uh, Bathsheba bore a son. All perfectly normal. David was able to live uh, with himself until his friend, the prophet Nathan, cleverly tricks David to start seeing from his own perspective again, to align his perspective with God's perspective, at which time David is stricken with guilt. You see, perspective switching is so second nature to us that we don't see that we can take good things. and We, we can elevate those good things to a place of ultimate importance that entangles and enslaves us. It could be anything. So if you uh, live for money and possessions, you find yourself enslaved by jealousy and envy with people who have just a little bit more. Or if you are into physical beauty and you're all about that, uh, then uh, you're going to develop uh, patterns of self-deception and entanglement and trying to keep uh, your beauty from fading. Or perhaps you're uh, into people-pleasing. And uh, you kind of live for the affirmation and the acceptance of other people. You're going to be held captive and entangled and ensnared in their affirmations and even their accusations. Um, it could be morality. Uh, if you live for morality, you become a proud, self-righteous uh, person. And when you fail in that or any of the above, we just can't bear, bear the guilt of that and the shame of that. And so... We switch perspectives. 
And slavery has a hold on us through the lie that there is something or someone more worthy of our love and devotion to God. So the first question that kind of confronts us is, what is it that enslaves us or entangles us or captures us? In a word, three-letter word, sin. It leads us to the the obvious next question, uh, what frees us? What emancipates us? We find that in verse 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what frees us, Jesus is saying what emancipates us here, in a word, truth. But we run into another problem. If our culture shakes its fist at the concept of sin, it also shakes its fist or wags its head at the concept of truth. Because oftentimes in our culture, in our day and age, Truth is often seen as the enemy of our culture's concept of freedom. In other words, we live in a culture and we kind of buy into this subtly, we don't see it, where nobody should tell us what to do and nobody else should define me but me. The modern definition of freedom is often the absence of restraints, of restrictions. I think that the biblical definition that Jesus is holding out here, and we see in other places of the Bible, is the biblical definition of freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. And this is often contrary to the way we think. I have, I'm a card-carrying member of Barnes & Noble and Books A Million and uh, Borders. And so I love coffee shops, and I hope they don't go out of existence, but they might. Um, I like to, on my day off, uh, sometimes I've been known to go into Barnes & Noble, and I'll read through a book. I do buy books there, okay? I don't cheat them. Uh, but I, you know, there's, I don't buy all their books, and so I'll find a good book, and I'll read through it over the course of several weeks or several months. Um, and one of those books that I found last year was an interesting book called Into the Wild. It's a story of Chris McCandless, and um, his story was first, it's a true story, so it was first published in the media, so I'm not giving away the end if I tell the story here. It's been out for quite some time. I do recommend the book, though. It's intriguing. But uh, Chris was a graduate student from Emory, and he came from a very wealthy family, I think, up in northern Virginia area. And uh, he went to, after he graduated Emory, he did something very strange, very wealthy, came from a wealthy family. He had $24,000 in his savings account. He gave it all away. He took out his wallet, he burned all of his cash and got rid of all of his credit cards. He assumed another identity and then he began the adventure of a lifetime. He, he, um, he traveled across America with no map. Now he was heading for Alaska, that was kind of his destination, uh, but he was living the modern dream of a life with no restrictions. No one to define Chris McCandless. But you know, as you read this book, you see this this inner longing. You can kind of read between the lines of this real longing for connection, of relationship. You know, the tragedy is that, uh, you know, the story that hit the news, um, he died alone. In fact, he spent the last four months of his life in Alaska starving to death. They found him with this note close by. It said, I need your help. I'm injured. I'm near death. I'm too weak to hike out of here. I'm all alone. This is no joke. You hear the words there? I'm all alone. He didn't have to put that, that point in there, but I'm all alone. Ironically, if he had gone about five more miles, uh, uh, survivalists said if he had gone about five more miles, he would have been able to cross 
the river that captivated him. So very interesting. But here's my point. The point is this. There is a freedom that is in reality a slavery. And the freedom that Jesus is talking about in this text is the freedom that truth brings. It's interesting up to this point, if we had time to journey through uh, the gospel according to John, we'll see that the gospel writer takes um, uh, just a lot of time to showcase who Jesus is. In one chapter, he's the bread of life who satisfies our deepest hunger. In another chapter, he's, he's the living waters that slakes our deepest thirst. In another chapter, uh, he is the light who reveals the glory of God. And now he's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm the embodiment of truth who breaks you out of the bondage of sin and out of the lies of Satan. And the means to that freedom is straightforward. Jesus didn't really beat around the bush. It's very straightforward. He says, uh, it is through listening and obeying the words of Jesus. Which means that true, get this, don't, don't lose this one, that true independence is really about what? Dependence. It's about Christ ruling. It's about giving up self-rule and trusting another. Brian referred to the Puritans in uh, our worship liturgy this morning. And uh, one of the, my favorite books that I read every day, it's worn out, the cover's off, it's breaking apart. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers that really takes you deep into the gospel as you pray through the gospel. And there's one prayer in particular that's one of my favorites. It's called Resting on God. I think really captures John chapter 8. Uh, the Puritan writes this in a form of a prayer. Let me live near the great shepherd. Let me hear his voice and his word. Let me know its tones. Let me follow its calls. Now listen to this. Keep me from deception by causing me to abide in your truth. Keep me from deception and you can put in there too, self-deception, by causing me to abide in your truth. I think that's really capturing what the essence of Jesus is saying right here. Jesus is not saying that if you strive and you strive and you strive and you obey and you obey and you obey, then you're going to earn a relationship with me. He doesn't mean that at all. In fact, there's no peace in that. How would we ever know that we'd have a relationship with, with Jesus if that was the case? We fail so often every day. What Jesus is saying here is that you trust me and you trust me with everything you have. You, tr you, you place your faith and hope and trust in me and you know me so well that you hear my voice, that you hear the subtleties of the tones in my voice and that you follow his call. You know, a child very quickly, see a number of children in here, very quickly at a very early age, a child discerns the tones of his parents or her parents. You know, it's uh, interesting. My, my father um, died when I was in college, uh, but I knew that from a very early age and as a teenager, uh, I kind of knew what, what, uh, what mood my father was in uh, by his tones or what he was trying to convey to me by his tones. I can still remember in my mind uh, his stern warnings. Watch out for the yellow jackets. I was playing follow the leader. I was the leader. He told me over and over about the yellow jackets on the wall. I still skipped by them, stung. I went crazy, and everybody behind me went crazy too. Watch out for those yellow jackets. Okay? I can remember his, his warnings or his commands or his um, uh, loving commands. You know, Danny, 
Clean your room today, okay? Um, I could hear his words of delight to this day. Now, my father didn't talk, a, he, he, was, he was very, um, you know, he wasn't very relational. And he didn't say, I love you very often in my life. But he would say these words of delight to me. I knew he was delighting in me. He would say, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Jesus says, freedom means abiding in my words, remaining right there, listening to his voice, knowing the subtlety of its tones, and following his calls. We looked at two big questions this morning already. Uh, what is it that entangles us, that ensnares us? Is a three-letter word, in a word, sin. Okay. What is it that frees us? In a word, Jesus says truth, okay? that he's the embodiment of truth. So the question is, how do we experience and enjoy this freedom? We find this in verse 35 and then verses 56 through 59. Look back with me in the text. Verse 35, Jesus says, the slave, this is really key, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever, Okay? Let's look at verse 56. Verse 56 says, it's talking to the Israelites. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So how is this freedom experienced and enjoyed? In a word, sonship. It's through sonship. Now we really can't understand uh, this concept until we kind of back up and we consider what Jesus is saying about himself in verses 48 through 58. Um, here's the, the interplay that's going on. Uh, the Israelites were, they were claiming that Abraham was their father and that they were his spiritual descendants, but they were really confused about what this meant. And so Jesus is making a startling claim, a shocking statement about himself in, here, in, these pas in this passage. He says that he is the truth that frees, but he also says something else. He says that he is the emancipator. He himself is the deliverer. Now, the opposition is really ramping up, and it's getting ugly. And so they're, they're pulling out the... Um, uh, kind of the ad hominem arguments here. He's saying, well, you know what? He's a, he's a Samaritan, which is really nothing more than a racial slur. And he says, you know, he's demon-possessed, which is really more, no more than a religious slur. And Jesus is saying, you know, it really doesn't matter what you say about me, but it's whoever aligns himself with my life, whoever submits to my reality, that is a person that will be delivered from eternal death. What was the reaction to that? Are you crazy? Okay, Abraham was faithful to God. Abraham obeyed God, and he died. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? And then Jesus said another startling, shocking statement. He said, you know what? Abraham looked forward to my day. And now they say, now, now we know you've lost it, Jesus. You know, maybe, maybe there's this psychological issue going on. We know you've lost it. You're not even 50 years old. You're in your thir early 30s. You would have to be 1,900 years old to make a statement like that. Then Jesus says the statement of all statements. He says, before Abraham was, I am. 
Do you hear an echo of another passage of Scripture in that? I am. It sounds a lot like Exodus, doesn't it? When God appears to Moses, and what is he about to do? He's about to liberate his people out of slavery and bondage and enslavement. He reveals himself to Moses and he says, tell Pharaoh, the one who has my people in captivity, tell him that I am sent you. I am is a divine name, which means self-existent one. It also means I have absolute freedom. Nobody defines me except me. And he brings his freedom to the Israelites. But God also promises to bring about an even greater freedom from sin and death. See, the exodus and all the things that Moses was accomplished through Moses was like a sundial that pointed directly to the embodiment of truth, Jesus himself. And Jesus is here, he's saying basically, when he says, I am, he's saying, I will use my absolute freedom as the divine one to give you life. And I give up my freedom in death so that you might live, that you might have life. Some of you maybe putting some of the dots together, and you might be thinking this morning, you know, if I submit to my life to the reality of Jesus, what is he going to do to me? What is he going to do with my life? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just not my nature to, to hand my life over to, to another person and say, here, run it. I trust you completely. And if that's your case this morning, I, I hear you. I struggle with that too, but I need to remind myself that Jesus is not a pharaoh, he's not a tyrant, he's the deliverer, he's the emancipator. He's the one that was willing to give himself up, his own freedom unto death, so that you can have freedom, here it comes around, to be sons and daughters. The freedom to be a son, the freedom to be a much-loved, daughter. A few years ago, there was a movie out called Martian Child, and it was a story about um, a man who had lost his wife. His name was David Gordon, and he's really struggling with the whole issue of aloneness, being alone. And um, he got in his head that he was going to adopt an orphan, and so he found an orphanage, and there was an orphan by the name of Dennis, and Dennis had issues. Dennis was completely abandoned by his, uh, his family. He was left all alone to this orphanage. And, um, you know, Dennis, um, Dennis thought that he was a Martian. Okay, that was his issue. And so David Gordon would visit this orphanage, and he would, you know, kind of, you know, think he's thinking about adopting this orphan named Dennis, but he's not quite sure. So one day he's talking to this little girl named Esther while they're all playing out in the playground, and he says to Esther, tell me about Dennis. And, and, and Esther said, Dennis is a weirdo, okay, because he thinks he's a Martian, and, um, you know, he's afraid of the sun. The sun's going to damage his Martian skin, so he doesn't come out at night. He's afraid, this is what it says, he's afraid of the sunniness of the sun. Well, the movie goes on, and David Gordon ends up adopting this child, and at the end of the movie, Dennis is still trying to come to terms with his abandonment, and um, he, he, he thinks the mothership is coming to get him. So he makes this trek up to, up to the hill of an observatory where he's awaiting the Martian ship to come get him. And what he's really doing is he's waiting for this mothership as he's really coming to terms with his abandonment. 
David Gordon finds him, and, and Dennis just kind of out of a cry of anguish saying, why? Why do they abandon me? The mothership didn't come back. And David Gordon, just out of a fit of anger, says, I don't know. They're the stupidest beings in the universe. But Dennis, you're my son. And I'll never, ever, ever leave you. And that's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of what Jesus is really saying right here in John chapter 8. Because all of us here, every one of us, are adapted hiding. And we're easily deceived. But we have a deliverer, an emancipator, who doesn't just emancipate us to freedom, but he elevates us to the status of sons and daughters. And that's good news. Let's pray.